We're uh, looking in Revelation chapter 2 and verses 12 through 17. We're going to talk tonight about the church at Pergamos. And uh, let's go ahead and start reading chapter 2 and verse 12. Jesus said, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he that has the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against you, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught. Uh, Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate, or which thing I hate. He says in verse 16, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of, thy, of my mouth. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To them that overcome, I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that has received it. Let's go ahead and bow to the Lord once again in prayer. Father, we thank you for the day. We ask your blessings upon the reading of the text and the preaching of the message. Use these things for your honor and glory tonight. I pray for your leadership and uh, for your will to be done. And all things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we look tonight at the, uh, the church at Pergamos, understand that the church name also represents the city that where that church was found. So this was the church at Pergamos. That was a city over in Asia Minor. And it was actually a very important city at that time, or at least at the time uh, when this letter was written. It was called the greatest city in Asia Minor. And like Smyrna, it also was highly influenced by a cult that worshipped Caesar as God. Now, we looked last week at the city of, uh, what was that, Sardis? Last, or actually Smyrna, excuse me, last week. And we saw where that was one of the central locations of this cultic uh, imperial uh, worship club, I guess is what they were. And, uh, they just worshipped the emperor as being God. Well, Pergamos was also uh, an important city for that imperial cult. Uh, in fact, they had a temple that was completely dedicated to Caesar, uh, which was probably what Jesus referred to as Satan's seat. Now, I don't know that for sure, but, you know, it's at least a, a good as, a, as good a guess as any that that's what he was referring to here when he talked about Satan's seat in verse 13. Now, like most of the other cities at that time, the people worshipped many gods, and Pergamos was home to other temples as well. All this placed the church there, of course, in a very difficult position because they found themselves as the victims of persecution but have remained faithful even through those very difficult times. Now, the church we looked at last week, they also were in the midst of all kinds of idolatry and have remained faithful. And, of course, Christ, uh, you, you know, he condoned that and he, he congratulated them for remaining faithful even through very, very difficult times and encouraged them to stay strong even through the tribulation that they would face in the future. But I want you to notice that all these things that Jesus commanded this church for were spoken in past tense. In other words, in the past church, you have been faithful, and I know that. I've seen your works, I've seen what you have done, but now there are some issues in the church that need to be addressed, because whereas you were faithful in the past, you have become an unfaithful church. Where you were uncompromising of my truth in the past, 
Now you've become a church that is compromising my truth. And so he confronted, he confronted their present faults here in verses 14 and 15. Now, not much is known about the Nicolaitans, and I, I looked up as much as I can, and it's like anything else in Revelation. Uh, every commentary you look at is going to say something different. But Satan was obviously using them to infiltrate the church and bring all kinds of wicked things and wicked teachings into the church there at Pergamos. And so, in short, the church at Pergamos had compromised, and Jesus wanted that fixed. As a matter of fact, he gives a stern warning. He says, if you do not fix this, if you do not repent, I will come and I will speak to you with the sword of my mouth. But we'll talk about that uh, more in just a second. Now, I want us to look at what the word compromise means for just a second, because that is an important word. It's a, it's a word that we need to give quite a bit of thought to. A compromise is an agreement that is made between two parties in which one or both will bend their own will and way in order to avoid conflict and keep harmony in a certain relationship. And so any relationship that you've ever been in, there has to be some kind of compromising. Either you're both compromising, or you're always compromising to fit someone else, or you're always demanding that someone compromises to fit you. Uh, but the, the deal is, is that there is compromise in just about any relationship. Now please understand... There are good and necessary compromises that must take place. Anyone who's been married for any amount of time knows that there are certain compromises that must be made in that marriage. And, but, but please understand that anywhere or any time that a compromise takes place, there's always a weakening somewhere in what's going on. And sometimes that's, that's a good thing. Sometimes you need to compromise. Uh, sometimes you've got to meet somewhere in the middle, but there are compromises that lead to a strengthening, although there has to be a, a point of weakening in that compromise. Sometimes the end of that compromise can be a strengthening of a relationship. Sometimes it can be disastrous to a relationship. And so, you know, we, we need to be very careful uh, when we do make compromises what we are compromising. We never compromise on the truth. We never compromise on things that are right. And so we have to be very careful of the compromises that we do make. Now, there are many faults that have been pointed out about churches today, but one of the worst issues we see going on in churches is the issue of compromises that are being made in the churches. Now, I'm not talking about compromising music or traditions, because those things in the long run are as important as some others, but I'm talking about compromising the truth, compromising what the Word of God has said. Uh, the truth is something that is becoming less and less important to churches today. And we're seeing that. The, you go around and visit several churches, and you're going to find that uh, the truth is not as important today in, in some churches as it has been in the past. But it is a serious thing. Please understand this. The truth is a serious thing to the Lord. Amen. The truth is very important to God. He introduced himself to this church as the one who is holding a two-edged sword. If you look at verse 12, he says, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, he says to the angel of the church at Pergamos, right, these things saith he which has a sharp sword with two edges. And we know that this sharp sword with two edges is talking about the word of the Lord. We saw that over in chapter 1. He commended the church for not denying the faith in the past, 
And he rebuked the church for the false doctrines uh, that were being taught at the time. And so Jesus, of course, takes God's word very seriously and so should we. God wants us to be a church that teaches and stands for the truth. And in a liberal world that's full of compromise, we must purpose in our hearts that we will not be moved by the pressures of society, but we must determine not to set aside our biblical beliefs in the face of ridicule. We must brace ourselves to stand firm upon God's word, regardless of what we face as a church. And so there's two things I want us to look at tonight as we consider what Jesus said to the church at Pergamos. First of all, we must stand for the truth. And I think this is something that Jesus is saying to this church here in Pergamos. He's talking about a stand for the truth. And I'm telling you tonight in the church, we're going to have to stand for the truth. Because in our society, there is no right or wrong. There are opinions, there are convictions, there are beliefs, but that's it. There is no right or wrong. So you can believe what's right for you. Another person can believe what's right for them. But to to say across the board that there is a standard of right, then that has been almost completely rejected uh, by our society. It is completely unacceptable today to call something wrong and say that something else is right. And we have very much returned to a place, as in the book of Judges, where every man did that which was right in his own eyes. I want to say tonight that there is a truth. There is a truth. And the thing about truth is that it is absolute, meaning there are no alternatives to the truth. Now I can stand here tonight, I can say that I am Anthony Phillips. Alright? I can tell you that that is my name. And and there's no alternative to that. I'm not somebody else. I couldn't be somebody else. If I decided that I wanted to be somebody else and say that I was Patrick or say that I was Jim Barr, I would be telling a lie because the truth is is that I am Anthony Phillips. Regardless of what I feel or regardless of what mood I'm in, that's who I am. That's just the truth of the matter. There is a truth and there is a standard of truth. Pilate asked Jesus the question. He said, what is truth? And what a great question because there are so many religions today, so many worldviews, so many belief systems, so many denominations that all of them claim to have the truth. So, I mean, that does get confusing. You walk into one church and this church says, we're teaching the truth. We're telling you the truth. And then you go down to the church down the street, or you go down to the club down the street, and they say, well, we're telling the truth, but we're teaching you the truth. Or you go to school, and then the school says, we're teaching you the truth. Or then you graduate, and you go to college, the college says, no, we're teaching you the truth. And every single one of the things that you've heard, although they all claim to be truth, they're all teaching and telling you different things. So it gets confusing. What, then, is truth? What standard do we have? What benchmark? Do we look at to find out where and what the truth is? Well, for the child of God and the people of God, we accept the Bible as being the revelation of His truth. Amen. And so where do we find the truth? It's found in the Word of God. Amen. I'm going to tell you this. You know, even as a church, we have we have doctrinal statements that we hold to. Um, we have a church covenant, and all those things are, are good as long as they are based upon the truth 
of God's word. Amen. You know, I'm gonna, I'll stand up and I'll, I'll keep talking as long as God gives me breath. I'm going to stand and I'm going to preach God's word. And because I'm a human being, there may be times when I say something that is wrong. So even what I say needs to be measured against the truth of God's word. Right? This is the standard of truth. Not pastor, not preacher, not science, not history. This is the standard of truth. And if what we're hearing anywhere else does not match what this word says, then there's a problem. And so this is the way that I started looking at things a while back. And sometimes people think I'm crazy, but, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of like this. When science comes up, they've got a new theory about this or that being wrong. I would have to take the Bible and fit science. Now, what I do is I look at what the Bible says, and until science fits what the Bible says, science is wrong. Amen. I'm reading all the time of these different commentaries and stuff like that, and they'll say, well, the Bible says this, but history actually reports that this wasn't until a later date or this, that, the other. I don't care what history says. I don't care what somebody wrote in the book. Because until that starts matching up with the Word of God, I already view that as being wrong. And so this is my benchmark of truth. And if I want to know what the truth says or what the truth is, I need to go to God's Word. There is a truth. And to put it very simply, as I've said, the truth is found in the Word of God. And and so then what we get down to is if there is a truth, then there is a truth about every single situation, every single subject that we're going to encounter. There is a truth. There is a truth about God. And the truth about God is not what you feel the truth about God is. The truth about God is what God's Word says about God. There is a truth about salvation. It's not what you think saves a person. It's what God's Word says saves a person. There is a truth about baptism. There's a truth about the church. There's a truth about sin and death and hell. And every subject you can encounter, there's a truth about it. There's a truth about marriage. And the truth about marriage is not what what I've studied on marriage or, or what some scholar says about marriage. The truth about marriage is found in the Word of God. Y'all with me on this, right? Amen. All right. Well, they're good. Move on. He says in verse 14, he says, I have a few things against you. He talks to the church of Pergamus here. That's Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, and he thinks sacrifice to the idols of commit fornication. He says, so you also have of them that hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Now the church of Pergamos had compromised by allowing false teachers and their teachings to enter the church there. He says, I have a problem with you, Pergamos, because while you used to be faithful to my word, now you've allowed people to come in and teach things that are contrary to my word. He says you're holding the doctrine of Baal and you're holding the doctrine of these 
Nicolaitans or, or however you say that, that word, he says, these guys are holding their doctrine as well. Now, I don't really know a whole lot about who the Nicolaitans were. Again, there's different opinions on who they were or what they taught, but you know, the point is that they were bringing in some very false things, uh, uh, some lies into uh, the church, and these things were permeating the belief system of the church there at Pergamos. Now, the doctrine of Balaam is this. The best way I can, I can explain that if you never read about uh, Balaam, he was a false prophet that you find back in the book of Numbers. And this was a time when Israel was about to make their entrance into Canaan. It wasn't long before they were going to enter into Canaan. And uh, the king Balak, he did not want Israel coming in and taking over his land and, and all that. He, he didn't want them there at all. And so he realized that he was not going to be able to defeat Israel in a battle. He says, there's something about their God that is different than anything else we've ever encountered. And he said, we can't do this in battle. So what he did is he got a clever idea that instead of going foot to foot with them or in a sword fight or in a battle, what he would do is he would actually try to get God to curse Israel. And then, so instead of attacking them physically, he would try to attack them spiritually. And so what it does is he calls up this false prophet. He was a prophet that... If, uh, if you paid him enough, he'd do whatever he wanted him to do. And so they hired this prophet named Balaam to go and to prophesy or to go and curse uh, the nation of Israel. And so, you know, of course, he goes over there and, and uh, he talks to God. And God says, listen, here's the thing. You are going to go. But you're not going to say anything except what I tell you to say. And so three times the prophet Balaam, he tries to go, because that's what he's getting paid to do. He tries to go and bring a curse upon Israel, but three times uh, he had to give a blessing upon Israel. And so the, the, the plan was backfiring. Balaam didn't know what to do because he knows he can't beat them in a physical battle. Now his prophet's not even working right for him. And, and so Balaam says, I have an idea. He says, this is what we'll do. Now obviously God is not going to let us curse Israel. And obviously, you're not going to be able to go head-to-head with Israel and win in a fight. So this is what we'll do. We'll tempt them. We'll put temptation out in front of them. We'll tempt them with idolatry, and we'll tempt them with adultery. In other words, we're going to, we're going to tempt their hearts and their dedication to God, and we're going to tempt their dedication to the wives. And so, in a combination of of deals, what it does is basically he brings down a bunch of women from the surrounding countries. What Israel does is they, they go in and they commit adultery with these women. And the point was is that if Israel will fall into sin, they will bring a curse upon themselves. And that's exactly what happened. Israel sinned against God, and judgment immediately began to be poured out upon them. Now, what's going on in this situation, of course, God stepped in, and of course, you know, some of the priests, so they, they, they stepped in and said what was right, said what the truth was, and they were able to kind of contain what was going on there, contain those consequences, but the fact is, is that the people did sin, and there were severe consequences for what they were doing. What Jesus says to the church at Pergamos is, he says, you got some that are holding to the doctrine of Balaam. In other words, they are bringing judgment upon the church because of their idolatry, and because of their adultery. Now, you have to understand that in idolatrous worship, there was always the bringing in of very immoral things 
that were coming to the worship uh, that would take place. And so as they were worshiping these false gods, not only were they being unfaithful to God, they were also being unfaithful to their wives and in the marriage. And so he says, you have uh, let this go on in the church, and now judgment is going to be brought into the church. And not only that, but you've also got these, these guys, whoever they take legs, who have come in, and they're also bringing uh, judgment upon the church as well because of what they're teaching. And so basically what he's saying is, you've got false doctrine that's going, you're being unfaithful spiritually to me, and until that gets fixed, we've got a problem, church. That's what Jesus is saying here to the church at Pergamos. Now, I want you to notice this. Who called these two guys wrong? Now, if I was to write a letter to the church down the street, I'm just saying the church down the street. I don't have any actual church down the street I want to write a letter to. But if I was to write a letter to the church down the street, and I say, you know, you're doing a lot of good things, but two things you're doing wrong, and I call it out by name. You, you got it. This is going on, you got this is going on. Man, I have all kinds of lawsuits put against me. You know, how dare you say that what we're doing is wrong? You know, and the thing is, I don't have the authority to tell another church what they're doing is wrong. But this is somebody else saying this. Who is, who is the one saying and calling this, these different teachings and these different people out? It's Jesus, right? He says, uh, you know, Anthony doesn't have any right to tell you about what you're doing wrong, but I'm the one who stands on the lampstands, and I'm telling you there's a problem in your church. I'm the one who has the, the Word of God, and I'm telling you there's a problem in your church. There's false teaching that's being done, and you need to fix it. That's what he goes down to in verse uh, 16. He says, so then because, oh, not that one. This other verse 16 says, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now notice the, the word of God is called the sword, the, the sword of the Lord. You know, and, But what he's saying is, he says, I will come and I will fight against them. If you do not fix the problem, I will. If you don't tell these people to straighten up or get out, he says, I'm going to come in and handle it. And when I come... It's not going to be pretty. He says, I will fight against them with the word of my mouth. And in other words, the very word that they were forsaking would become their judge. That leads us to the second thing. Not only must we stand for the truth, but we must repent of any falsehood that's going on. The name Pergamus, actually, if you look back at the Greek language, the name Pergamus means Mary. And what a wonderful reminder to God's churches that we are betrothed to Him. Just as a bride is remained pure for her husband, the churches remain pure for the bridegroom. Now listen, I think I'm about to make one of those obvious statements that I don't really have to make, but I'm going to make it anyway. Adultery is unacceptable in marriage. It is unacceptable. There is nothing more dishonorable and degrading in marriage than adultery. A husband and wife have been given to each other, and how repulsive it is for any husband or wife to find their spouse unfaithful. But I want you to know that the Bible teaches us about spiritual adultery as well. And where your husband and your wife is to be your one and only, God says that he is to be our one moment as well. We are not to worship 
And we are not to commit spiritual adultery with anything else. Spiritual adultery is when one who belongs to God gives himself over to things that are contrary to his word. As a church and as church members, we need to dedicate ourselves completely to Christ. No more flirting with the philosophies of this world. No more compromising with what is plainly written in God's word. No more I think or no more I feel. What does the word of God say? And whatever the word of God says, that's what we're going to be true to. Amen. Now, what happens if we as a church look through what we teach and we look through what we do and we find something that is wrong? What do we do? Well, Jesus gives one word, one command. He says in verse 16, look at the first word there, repent. The word repent means to turn completely the other direction. But I'll tell you what, repent also means it means to have a change of heart. To have a complete change of heart. He says repent. Repent. If you this false teaching is going on in the church, repent. Now what did he warn would happen to Pergamus to the church there if they did not turn from their false teaching? He said in verse 16, or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now my dad had a different saying that he would that he would get. He said, You better straighten up, or else I will come in there quickly and I will fight against you with the belt of my pants. <laughs> And you better believe, we turned around real quick. There was some repenting. There was all kinds of repenting going on. And we did not want that to take that belt off. Jesus says, you turn around. You quit that. Stop it. You repent of this. He says, well, I will come quickly. And I will fight against you. There's going to be blood. There's going to be tears. If he had to show up and fight against them with the word of his mouth. Remember how he introduced himself in verse 12. He says in verse 12, turn back there, he says, To the angel of the church of Pergamus, write, These things saith him, which has the sharp sword with two edges. So he introduces himself to the church that is leading out of false doctrine. He says to that church that he is the one with the sword with two edges. And he says, If you don't turn away from your false doctrine, you're going to get to experience that sword firsthand. You're going to see just how sharp and how powerful my word can be. I'm going to tell you, the word of God, even over in Hebrews chapter 4, talks about being quick. It's alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. I'm going to tell you, the word of God can cut down to your heart. And it can either give the encouragement and the direction, the good things that you need, I'm going to tell you the word of God can cut your heart another way as well. It'll pierce you right through, even the hardest of hearts. It'll say, This is not acceptable. And this is the consequence if you do not turn away from this. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying to the church at Pergamus. Jesus ended this address to the church at Pergamus with that familiar challenge in verse 17. He said, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We see this in every other address that he's made. And we'll see this as we go along as well. 
That as he's speaking, he says, as the Spirit speaks to your heart, if you have an ear, an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying, then listen to what he's saying and respond to it. And then he made a promise in verse 17. He said, to him that overcomes, I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in that stone a new man written, which no man knows, save he that receives it. That's difficult for me to pinpoint exactly. Somebody actually uh, came out last week and they said, now listen, when you get to that white stone, you need to spend a little bit of time there because I'm not understanding that. And I'll just tell you the truth. It's kind of hard for me to pinpoint exactly what Jesus is getting at here, exactly what he's saying. Uh, I think that's the whole the whole part of that mystery, or he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. There have been many interpretations of what this could mean, but the greatest reward, listen, that, that any of us could ever receive on this earth is a deeper revelation of Jesus Christ. It's to know him more. It's to know him in a deeper and more intimate relationship and knowledge. Now listen, Jesus, he says in verse 17, the him that overcomes, he says, first of all, I'll give him the heat of that hidden manna. We'll go back to Jesus' previous words, even from the same author here, John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus told those Jews, he says, I am the true manna. I am the living bread that's come down from heaven. He says to this church over here at Pergamos, he says, to him that overcomes, I will allow him to eat of that hidden manna. Then he says, I'm going to give him a white stone and I'm going to write a new name that only the one who receives it is going to know what it is. So what is he saying here? I think what he's saying is that the person who overcomes, the person who repents, who changes to the ways and, and makes this thing right, he says, to them, I'm going to, if I can just sum it up, they're going to be able to experience a deeper and more meaningful fellowship with me. They're going to get to share and, and taste of that hidden manna. And he says, and I'm going to give them a name that only them and, and, and I know. Something that's just shared between them and Christ. I personally think he's talking about a deepened fellowship with himself. Now again, that's just the best interpretation that I can do of that. And you may read it. And you, uh, you know, the Lord may uh, lead you to uh, something else. But you know, it all comes down to there's only one truth and. And uh, so the best I can do is just try to try to share it as much as I possibly can. Uh, I think this is something that we've just got to depend on the Spirit to help us to understand. But but here's the point: there was judgment for being underpinned. There were blessings for repentance. He says, if you don't repent, here's the consequences. But he that does, there's going to be blessings. There's going to be a, a shared intimacy and a shared knowledge, um, you know, that, that's never been there before. And I think that's something that we can look forward to, not only in heaven, but even something that we can experience here on earth.